Now, I've got to remember that I can look around and not just straight at the camera this week. So if you see me just getting stuck looking at a camera, just remind me because uh, I might forget. It's been how long? Like weeks, months, months and months of just staring at the camera and you've just been watching me just staring at you. So now I'm going to look around and occasionally I'll stare back at you. In the kind of thing. Anyway, the greatest game of basketball that anyone ever played was back in 1962. I'm a basket. I love basketball, and uh, I told my son Tarquin that I'll be talking about basketball today, just to keep him engaged. So, uh, but it was in 1962. It was in Pennsylvania, and the guy's name was Tarquin guessed it, Wilt Chamberlain. He was of the Philadelphia Warriors. They were called the Warriors at the time, and he was seven foot one, and he was just bigger than everyone else. He was just a monster, but not just bigger. The big guys they were normally clunky. Uh, they normally didn't do a whole lot, but this guy, Wilt Chamberlain, he wasn't just big, but he was athletic. He was good. He was very good. And Wilt Chamberlain, he averaged over 50 points a game for a whole season. 50 points a game. That probably will never be uh, beaten. 50 points a game. Can you imagine that? Um, 50 points in one game. But on March 2, 1962, Wilt Chamberlain broke another record that will never, ever be beaten again. Never will this happen. He scored 100 points in a single game. And it wasn't just him against, it was a team effort, but he scored 100 points on his own. Now, I can't fathom putting up that many shots on a Monday night down in Ringwood to even get near that. I can't fathom it. He took 68 shots in the game of 48 minutes. He took one shot like more than one shot a minute. It was unbelievable. And he scored uh, 32 of those shots. But what was most remarkable about this particular day was that he shot 28 out of 32 free throws. Now, if you don't know what a free throw is, it's when you, you have a shot and you get fouled. They give you a, a free shot. So the shot is normally 15 foot away, and normally people do that to have the shot in. And it, it sort of just all happens and... It's a free, got, free shot. He got 32 opportunities to get 32 points um, at the foul line. But he being a big guy, standing there and doing that, and if you watch much basketball, the big guys aren't the best shooters. In fact, the worst shooters in the NBA now, which is the American basketball, are the big guys. They shoot poorly. They shoot under 40%. Four in 10. Every four in 10. That's probably what I shoot on a Monday night. Four in 10 free throws. I don't get to the line very often, so it's hard to tell. But um, that's what they sh these, some of these big guys shoot. It's not great. And Wilt Chamberlain was no different. He was a big guy that could not shoot a free throw. So he, on this night, however, got 28 free throws out of 32. That is, what's that, 87% free throw shooting. In his career, he was about 50%. He shot one out of two. So every time he steps to the line, there's a 50-50 chance that he's going to get the ball in. But this night, his percentage went up to 87%. It is incredible. It is incredible. So what was the difference with Wilt Chamberlain's shooting this night than any other night. What is, does anyone know? Any of you guys at the back of basketballers? Does anyone know why? No? What was that? Bucket shot. He did. He did. The boys at the back. They knew. He shot the ball. Instead of going overhand, he shot it underhand. 
He took to the ball. I want to see you guys on one Monday night do one of them. Benny, do it, do it, no? Oh, watch me, I'll, I'll try it. <laughs> see how we go. But he shot underhand and it went in. It went in 28 times out of 32. He shot, it's called, it's called a scoop shot or more of a cynical name that people call it is a granny shot because maybe grannies can't shoot that far. I don't know. Um, but, but it was ridiculed by all the other NBA players, all the other basketballers. And I'm sure if I go down on Monday night and stand at the foul line and do that, I guarantee you I will be laughed at because it's just not how you do basketball. It's not, it's not illegal. You're allowed to do it. There's no way you can't do it. I've started coaching my daughter's under-sevens team, and the only way they can get the shot in at the moment is to do a scoop shot. So it's just wonderful. So I'm teaching them, but you've got to shoot from up here, and they're all going, ha-ha, look at that, I can get it in. It's great. So anyway, um, now only a handful of people in the NBA ever did scoop shot foul throws, only a handful. And one guy was in the top 10 of percentages, the one guy that did it. His name was Rick Barry, and he played with Wilt Chamberlain. And his percentage throughout his entire career, this was a guy that made the All-Star, the best of the best, his percentage was 89.3%. The scoop shot worked. Nine out of ten shots went in. So, the question we have to ask is why doesn't everyone do a scoop shot? Because no one does it. No one does it. There's even science behind it saying the scoop shot, it makes a softer landing on the basket, therefore it, it is likely to roll. There's science behind all this. You can go look it up. Whereas this one is more of a flatter shot. So why don't they do it? Why doesn't everyone shoot like this? There's a sociologist, I've been listening to a podcast, um, and there's this socio sociologist called Mark Granavera. He came up with what he calls the threshold model of collective behaviour. The threshold model of collective behaviour. And he asked the question, why do people do things out of character? Why do people do things out of character? Or why do people, for example, if you're in a crowd and you're a reserved type of person and you would never sort of dance or whatever, but in a crowd all of a sudden you still feel yourself starting to get into it. <laughs> why would people do that? And he sort of starts to ask these, these questions. Um, and the threshold of collective behaviour is what he came up with. In essence, what it says is that we all have a threshold that will be broken when the crowd is loud enough. We all have a threshold that will be broken when a crowd is, is loud enough. So Wilt Chamberlain's threshold, he was very low because he did this one game where his scoring was so incredible it got him to 100 points, yet he didn't do it again. He wouldn't keep this up. If he did this, he's, he's, he could have been, he still is one of the greatest of all time, but he could have been the greatest of all time, the greatest scorer. Shaquille O'Neal is the same boat. He could not. Everyone's heard of Shaquille O'Neal? Shaquille O'Neal. He's a big basketballer, very, very famous, but he couldn't shoot free throws. He just couldn't do it. If he had it done it underhand, maybe he would have been uh, one of the greatest of all time. He probably still is. There's plenty of examples beyond basketball about this as well. Because Wilt Chamberlain, he heard he had a low threshold and therefore he stopped doing what could have helped him. But I'm thinking, what are some other examples? Young people or kids wanting to be in the same crowd, they wear the same clothes. They wear the same clothes as, the other, as their friends. 
When you're dieting and you go out for dinner and you think, I really should have the salad, but you see someone else having the steak, you think, oh, it's not great for my diet, but hey, there's three people having the steak. I better have the steak. <laughs> the threshold of collective behavior, it brings us back to what is the norm. So you know this threshold of collective behavior, it got me thinking about, about Jesus and how, uh, about what Jesus was like on earth and how he would not be moved by anything that was around him, by anything. When it came for what he stood for, he would not be moved. If, if Jesus played basketball, I reckon he'd do a scoop shot every time. He would not be worried about the crowd and what they had to say, regardless of how big those crowds were. He didn't succumb to what was popular. He didn't break down when pressure came upon him. He stuck to kingdom values. He touched lepers. He hung out with tax collectors. He fights with the religious leaders. He didn't take the popular opinion of the crowd. Rather, he stayed true to the truth of God. Now, over the past few months, there's, I feel anyway, there's been a a tussle, a massive tussle within the boundaries of Christianity I feel that the, the issue of vaccination passports has polarised the church possibly even further than it did when um, some other things have been coming up. The one place where unity should prevail, it's been broken even further. Over the past month or so, I've had emails and heard Christian voices using language like they, the unvaccinated, they should get themselves vaccinated. Or I've heard the vaccinators say they're crazy for letting these things that they don't even know into their bodies. They. It's a splitting word, isn't it? I've heard all sorts of reasons why the vaccine is no good for you. But I've also heard lots of reasons why if you don't get it, you're not, uh, it's not a good thing for the whole of society. I've heard stories how friendships between good Christian people have broken down and how family units even have been shattered. Because, sure, it's our regulations that have been set by our government, and, but, yes, as Christians, we've bought into maybe this idea that politics has overridden our Christian understanding of empathy. It seems that the collective threshold, the threshold of collective behaviour in both of these instances, is very strong. Pro-vaccination, anti-vaccination. Once you make a stance, the, the, the voice has become strong. The media doesn't help, does it? It sits us in this funny little space. We hear what we want to hear. The websites, we trawl to find information about it. Some of them right, some of them not right. Who knows what truth is? And in many cases... It causes an impasse that ultimately someone ends up hurt. And this is within Christian communities. This isn't talking about beyond. This is in Christian communities. And this hurt comes because we've taken our eyes off the fact that as Christians, our call to unity, our call to sharing the love of Jesus must always be greater than our political stance. Surely it has to be. The church should not and cannot allow political views interrupt God's mission. 
And God's mission is so much more powerful when we are united. We're living in a confusing reality. We're living in a place where we're not sure if we need to wear masks or not. In one place we do, in another place we don't. We need to QR code everywhere, but sometimes we need to show our vaccination certificates, sometimes we don't. At Eastland yesterday it was like uh, coronavirus had never been a part of our, our history. There were that many people around. It was amazing. We've been locked down as a state for the longest place of anywhere in the world. Yet a few weeks later, we have no restrictions if you're unvaccinated. If you can make any sense of what is going on, you're doing well. However, it's polarised and confused community. The one thing that within this I believe we need to sustain is empathy. We need to sustain an empathy for those who don't see things your way. It's really important. We need to not laugh at the seven-foot giant who decides to throw the ball underarm for a free throw. Rather, we need to empathise with them, embrace them, stand behind them and say, you know what, that may be the best thing for your game. One of the hardest things that I've had to witness through this time is that I think we've lost some empathy towards others. There's many reasons for it. We know that. We're tired. We've been worn down. (laughs) Pressure is at its highest as it ever has been. Trying to cope with uncertain work situations, home situations. Not knowing what's around the corner. Not knowing if we're in or if we're out. Not knowing whether we're going to be wearing masks or not. It's, It's just hard. We've had enough to struggle with as it is trying to understand our own emotions in this let alone consider the emotions of the other, especially the other who thinks differently to me. And they're all unhelpful companions to empathy because it makes empathy really difficult and sometimes just hard work. So this morning, I want to to explore from a biblical point of view, a biblical position, how we can remain empathetic even when we hold different viewpoints, and even through pressures of life, how we can remain empathetic. Because every Christian, not just some Christians, not just Christians that have been Christians for over 10 years, or every Christian should, should enter the pains and hurts of others, even those who differ in their opinions to us. And we're going to look at four lessons from Scripture Four different scriptures that actually help us to have a biblical response to empathy today. So before we get to those four lessons, let's understand what empathy is, this term empathy, because sometimes we we might get it a little bit wrong. So we're going to watch a short video from Brene Brown, who encapsulates it well with a, a little sort of video sort of thing. So we'll get that going if we can, Joe. Thanks. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, 
the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, <laughs> it's bad, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling rarely if ever does an empathic response begin with at least I had a yeah and we do it all the time because you know what someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Good, pretty good um, definition of empathy, isn't it? Pretty good definition, getting down in the hole. Empathy is a combination of two Greek words, em and pathos, which mean in and feeling, in feeling, feeling together. And it's a power of understanding and imaginatively entering into another person's feelings. It's an identification with and understanding of another situation's feelings and motives. It isn't sympathy. Because sympathy differs. When you, when you sympathise, you have a feeling of sorrow or hurt for another. Yet empathy enters into the person's hurts or the person's feelings through your own experience or understanding of the experience that they're going through. In this time where many voices are saying many different things, empathy is the ability to understand and to enter into the feelings of another. And it's vital for us. So let's look at four lessons from Scripture that can help us to remain empathetic throughout this whole pandemic problems. The first one we're going to look at is 1 Peter 3 verse 8. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to flick there or you want to, might want to have a look into it. It says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Be like Minded. The New King James translation actually says, be of one mind. Be of one mind. 
And that mind is actually the mind of Christ. That's what the, the writer is trying to say. This is, this is our aspiration, isn't it, as people of faith, that we are like Christ. We have a mind that is like the mind of Christ. However, if this to happen, Peter tells us we've got to be sympathetic. We've got to love one another. We've got to be compassionate. And we must be humble. If we look at these four words, what do they have in common? They're all focused on the other and they're not focused on ourselves. It makes us ask questions like, how do you feel? Why do you feel that way? Being of like mind, having one mind, that mind of Christ means that we're to seek to understand the viewpoints of others. This has been one of the hardest parts about this pandemic. We've got so much information at our fingertips. We can find articles from renowned doctors that have ammunition against getting vaccinated, ammunition for getting vaccinated. And rather than seeking to understand the viewpoint of the other, we come with all the reasons why we are right. Remember Wilt Chamberlain? Well, Rick Barry the really good underarm free thrower, he tried to convince Chamberlain to shoot for the rest of his career underarm. Yet rather than listening, rather than increasing the capacity of his game, rather than seeking to understand and acknowledge the voice of another, he had his ammunition loaded. Everyone else in the league shoots overhand, so should I. You know, keeping our eyes off ourselves and bringing our eyes onto the other, it disarms us. And it allows us to enter into the views of another. You, you, it's all right to have a different viewpoint. It is okay. You know, we all have different views about different things all the time. Hopefully, the cores of our faith are the same. I'm pretty sure that they are. But I feel we've lost the art of healthy relational disagreement. We can be of one mind, but still see things differently. I don't like, oh, I, li- I, might, I like Vegemite, you might not. We see things differently. <laughs> Empathy tells us that the differences that we have shouldn't break the common bond that we have in Christ. That's where empathy hits the road. Let's move on to Romans 12, verse 15. Uh, I'll read from 14 to, uh, to part of 16 as well, which is what Jeanette read to us. It, said, it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. If we are talking empathy now, it's really important for us to know that empathy actually rejoices with those who are rejoicing. Empathy rejoices. Have you had that tinge of pain when you see someone rejoicing over something that has happened? I know when I heard of the two little babies being born this week, I had little fist pumps. Yeah, how good is that? So good. (laughs) But I also know that for some people, that's hard news. That's tough news. That is really tough news. It's hard to rejoice when maybe 
It's not something you've been able to do. Yet we're called to do it. We're called to rejoice in those times. We've got to try not to allow jealousy to creep in. Don't let competitiveness take control. Don't try and top another person's story. Rather, do what the scriptures say. Rejoice in the rejoicing of others. It also tells us to mourn. Mourn with those who are mourning. There's nothing fun about mourning, is there? It comes from a great loss. Generally from death, but people also mourn the loss of a job, the loss of a company, the loss of a a relationship, something along those, the loss of possessions. Mourning with those who are mourning can be really hard because most of us have, have already had to mourn about something in our lives and it brings back all those memories as well. It's a part of us that continues to impact us and it can bring up past hurts. But here's where sympathy and empathy, they, they, they are vastly different. Sympathy mourns by sending a card. Empathy mourns by sitting and crying alongside. The New King James Version says, weep with those who weep. It means getting in, feeling the pain, even if you don't necessarily want to do that. You know, through this pandemic, there has been pain caused. Some unknowingly, some willingly, unfortunately. Most of the pain has come from words that people have used. Some words that you didn't know that you were saying that might have hurt someone. People who have chosen to not be vaccinated are mourning the loss of a freedom that that vaccinated people are enjoying right now. This is hard. It's hard to reconcile because it has divided our communities. Because in this scenario, we have rejoicing and we have mourning. So for anyone that's vaccinated, how are you mourning with those who are mourning because they can't go to the shop now that they want to go to? I want to challenge you. Maybe go and buy a takeaway coffee and go and sit with someone who can't go into a cafe right now because they're not vaccinated. Tell them that you're feeling for them and telling you want to, tell them you want to sit with them. But for you who are unvaccinated, I want to speak into this as well because it's tough and I understand that. But what does it look like for you to rejoice with us who are rejoicing at the moment? Because vaccinated people are allowed to do things. We haven't been allowed to do things for years. So how are you rejoicing? You see, our decision to mourn with those who mourn or rejoice with those who rejoice makes 16, verse 16, uh, the first part of verse 16 of uh, Romans 12 a reality. It says, live in harmony with one another. Don't, don't make it a separate thing. Actually, mourn together. Rejoice together. Be together. It's a word that brings us together in unity. God's kingdom wants that. God's kingdom needs that. Let's move on. John 11.35. Here's where we see Jesus. We're looking at the character trait of Jesus. It's always good to, a character trait of empathy. It's good to see what Jesus, how it looked in Jesus' eyes. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus' empathy and compassion can be found in John 11, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus' friends, Mary and Martha, they sent for him because his, their brother, Lazarus, was very sick. It was Jesus' friend. When he arrived after, Lazarus was already dead. 
He met with Mary and Martha, and John 11.35 says he wept. Jesus knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that Mary and Martha's suffering was only going to be temporary. It was going to end pretty soon because he was going to bring the brother back. (laughs) He knew exactly what was going to happen, yet he still wept. He was so deeply moved that he wept with these sisters. He entered into their pain and into their suffering and shared with them the pain and death of separation, the pain of death and separation. And it's what we're called to do, to empathize with those around us. Jesus could have been excused for saying, actually, don't cry, I've got, a, I've got something coming up. <laughs> Jesus knew the bigger plan, yet he still wept. So empathy is seeing the joy in uh, entering into the joy or the pain of someone else's situation, regardless of what you know of what is coming next or don't know. That's what Jesus did. And finally, Hebrews 4, verse 15. This is the last one we're going to look at. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. The book of Hebrews, it presents Jesus like uh, a defense attorney. <laughs> he, he represents his followers, uh, Christians, before God the judge. And, and while Satan is the prosecuting attorney, um, leveling all the charges at us of all the things that we've done in our life, demanding that God punish our sins, Jesus rebuts his accusations and reminds God that it is his blood that covers all of our offenses. Jesus is our great high priest, and he mediates on our behalf. And he can do that because Jesus knows what it means to be human. Jesus suffered. Jesus experienced struggles. He he experienced what it looked like to live in a fallen world. Jesus is able to empathize with our weaknesses because he's lived them out himself. He never sinned in it. It's hard enough not to get angry at the guy who cut me off on the road just yesterday in the car. I wonder how Jesus would go with the driving around Melbourne and <laughs> people cutting him off. You know, but the fi- that final lesson, that final biblical passage becomes very personal. Because no longer am I asking you to be empathetic towards another person with a different viewpoint. I'm talking about being, uh, I'm not not talking now about uh, our Christian brothers and sisters. Rather, it's now directed straight at you. This is for you now. Because we, as people of Christ, you have a high priest who stands before the judge and says, You are perfect. Your weaknesses are made strengths in Christ. You can live free in Christ, not in guilt. Therefore, you do not need to think about condemnation because Jesus doesn't, doesn't just have the answer. Jesus is the answer. So why do I say that? Because our empathy, our love, our compassion, it can only come through having lived it out ourselves, having lived in the experience of empathy that has come to us through Jesus Christ. We've, we've experienced it in our lives. God's shown us this through Jesus. 
Now go and do likewise. You can weep with friends and family, just like Jesus did. You can rejoice with those who are rejoicing. You can mourn with those who mourn. And you can have an other focus because you can be assured of who you are. Can you imagine what that will do to the unity of the church? Can you see the impact of showing empathy to those who might see things a little differently to you? Can you imagine what our local society will say? People looking at the church will say when they see the differences of opinion, not pulling the place apart, rather saying we're still going to embrace. It's no longer a threat. These times may not be easiest for the church. And believe me, uh, pastors all over the place are going through the same, same conversations Separation and segregation was not something that we ever thought in our Australian culture that we'd be seeing. However, this is our set reality right now. And our community needs a church to stand up and say, through the difference of opinion, I choose to stand with empathy with my fellow friends in Christ. Well, Chamberlain, he never went back to shooting underarm after that, that night. He finished his career with 51% shooting, one from two. He succumbed to the louder voices, telling him that being different will make you a target for ridicule. So overhand, free throws were his thing, and he missed every second one. Let's not make that same mistake. Society points to separation and segregation. Even yesterday, there were two rallies, weren't there? Two totally different rallies in the, in the city. One that was rallying for one thing, one that was rallying for the opposite thing. doesn't make any sense to me. It has the potential to be devastating for the church. However, if the church can, continues in the same vein of lack of empathy and loss of empathy, the kingdom of God gets hurt. So be willing to find that space of empathy through this coming week. Seek to engage with someone who has a different viewpoint to you and and love them up. (laughs) Do something that shows that you care, even if you don't fully agree with them. Let's see the church, not just KSBC, let's see the church, God's church, be unified and strengthened as we find empathy through these confusing realities. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we just want to stop and consider what that means for us. That God, that you, the great high priest, would would show us such immense grace that whilst we didn't deserve it, you died for us. Lord, may we take that and show immense empathy to the person next door, to the people across the road, to our friends that we haven't spoken to for a while, to those who have a different viewpoint to us, to those who maybe we've been in arguments with, to family members who have been hurt. God, help us to build unity into the church in a time where it seems so easy to break it. God, we're trusting that you are present, ever-present, working the lives of each of us, touching our hearts, that we might be a church that is united. 
Amen.